Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast. My name is Paul LaFavor. I'm here with my rancher buddy, Mike Blackburn. Uh, today is uh, Friday, 30th of September, 2022. Uh, it's awesome to get some cool weather. I've been enjoying that. I uh, hope you have too. Uh, and today we're, we're uh, going back to one of our books we talked about a while ago, a book that I authored uh, back in 2018. That is Tactical Leadership. And I wanted to extract a story out of there that's near and dear to my heart. And uh, I want to just kind of uh, exfoliate kind of the plan and then come away from it with some good lessons learned. So it's about leadership. It's about uh, a tactical operation that happened, uh, really a strategic level operation. It was called Operation Eagle Claw. We also know uh, it as Desert One. Uh, this was the, the first big mission out of the shoot. Uh, for the uh, newly created in 1977 Delta Force. And so this was the, the mission that also uh, was designed to rescue 53 hostages uh, once the Iranian uh, Iranians, about 500 uh, militant students, they stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran uh, in late 1979. Um, and so this was an attempt to get them, but coming out of it, there's so many lessons learned. And so that's really what I want to do today is talk about Desert One, uh, talk about um, the decisions that was made, uh, and really just uh, kind of take a little bit of an analysis to it and then apply it to leadership and tactics. Does that sound fun? Sounds like a good time. So, yeah, just to give a little bit of a background here, uh, we've had uh, our fingers in the pie, if you will, in uh, Iran uh, in the past. So to go back a little ways, um, back in the 50s, uh, together with the, uh, the British, uh, we actually deposed a guy named Mossadegh, who was uh, the leader of Iran back then. And it was a coup. It's called Operation Ajax, 1953. Uh, we deposed him. There was some, some seedy reasons for doing that. I mean, you had... Uh, Really, the Iranians were trying to uh, control uh, British uh, petroleum and their rights to the oil over there. <clears throat> but it was also really to what brought this on was uh, the, you know the strategic importance of Iran, where it sits. Also in the in the Great Game, uh, if you're not familiar with that, uh, that's a, a title given to uh, the British and Russian and us, uh, but really British and Russian. Uh, strategic game involved with uh, keeping the Russians from getting to India and getting them to a, a warm water port on the Indian Ocean. And so that involves all kinds of stuff. The British being in Afghanistan a couple times. Uh, and then so Iran is just kind of bigger, that part of that bigger picture. But another thing you need to know is uh, uh, the coup uh, deposed uh, this, uh, uh, really, the Shia uh, leader, 
Musadeh. And so, you know, Iran uh, is uh, predominantly Shia. Uh, and this was really putting in a pro-West puppet. And we put in a guy named Pahlavi. Uh, and Pahlavi really was, uh, he was going to do our bidding. You know, we wanted a guy in there. I'm just calling it like it is. Uh, we wanted a guy to just kind of do what we want. Uh, and so we made this happen with the Brits. And so we, we brought out Musa Day. We brought in Pahlavi and Operation Ajax. So you can look after that, look at that and research in 1953. And so things were good for a while, for us anyway. Uh, but the people, you know, they, they gained uh, militancy. Uh, they wanted to oust uh, Pahlavi. Pahlavi was really, uh, he acted like a king, right? He, he kind of fashioned himself after one of the uh, Persian emperors, and so he lived lavishly, and, and he was just kind of like, you know, forget the people. And so uh, not very popular. And so uh, I'm just kind of filling a little bit of a background here. You had uh, enter a guy that entered the scene here of Ayatollah Humaini, right? Uh, Humaini comes in. Uh, he's a guy that's got a plan. He's going to overthrow Pahlavi. Uh, and so... On the 4th of November, 1979, you have about 500 students. And, you know, college students, they're always so highly impressionable. Uh, they storm the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Now, just kind of give you an idea here. Uh, Tehran is uh, in the, you know, it's just below the Caspian Sea in Iran. It's the capital of Iran. <clears throat> and you've got, it's surrounded by desert and mountains. Uh, at the time, you know, it's... Uh, it's pretty isolated from anything U.S. controlled. So it's those people in that embassy were out there flapping big time. We're talking Marine guards, people that normally would work uh, in the embassy. And the embassy, uh, if you look, you can just look on uh, you know Google search and see how big it was. But it had you know several buildings and uh, you know housing for them, and then a, a wall around it. And so these people are coming over the wall. Uh, 4th of November. They're burning American flags. They're getting wor worked up into a frenzy. And uh, there's a, a couple of good movies that kind of show this. Uh, Argo kind of shows the, uh, uh, with Ben Affleck, kind of shows kind of the background to this, how they were just getting worked up. It also shows a Canadian embassy and stuff like that. But uh, just imagine that, people coming over the, the fence and then quickly subdue everything. And so there's people, you know, shredding stuff, People, uh, you know, retrograding into some rooms and some safe rooms. And uh, so that was basically the situation. 4th of November, 1979, they completely take over the U.S. Embassy. So this is a sovereign territory of the United States. An embassy is, is sovereign. This is like a piece of the United States. Uh, and who is at the helm at the time? With uh, President Jimmy Carter. So arguably, you know, not the best president, uh, but... Um, he did actually do some good, some good calls. He made some good calls along the way, and we can highlight those. So there he is. Now he's got uh, 53 hostages. They're about 1,600 miles away from anything U.S. controlled. Uh, and so now it's time to go to the drawing board. What are we going to do? Uh, we did, uh, going back a little bit in history, you had 1976, you had uh, the Israeli commandos, they executed that lightning raid at Entebbe, and uh, that was very impressive. Uh, it called uh, our, our U.S. military really to uh, come up with this, its own unique capabilities, and, 
And that's where you enter Charlie Beckwith, Colonel Charlie Beckwith. Uh, who was he? Uh, he was a World War II uh, in Vietnam veteran. Uh, Charlie Beckwith uh, was a colonel at the time, a major at the time when he set up what was called uh, Project Delta B-52. And that was a, a program that was really parallel to MACV SOG. Uh, started in 1964, used uh, two SF guys with four other Vietnamese uh, Army uh, special ops guys. And then these guys would be employed to do any number of uh, special op missions that the that SOG was also doing. Study is an observation group in Vietnam, also known as SOG. So basically, these two units are predecessors of Delta. But for this, uh, what we're talking about here is Charlie Beckwith. He's the founder of uh, Delta Force, uh, also known as uh, Combat Application Group and stuff like that. Uh, so uh, Charlie had just set up uh, Delta back in 1977. So it was a brand new uh, unit. This was uh, tip of the spear, cutting edge, uh, anti-terrorist unit that the United States could use in its arsenal. And so, you know, of course, what's mentioned to the president, hey, what do we have that can do something about this? And of course, Delta is mentioned. And then uh, Charlie Beckwith is going to get the mission. So that leads us into uh, kind of just look at uh, the principal commanders and then the principal problems they have to get in there. Uh, so given the, uh, they create a task force under Lieutenant General James Vaught. You know, Vaught was also a Vietnam commander. Uh, you know, he's had been there, done that. And uh, one of the big problems, though, with this mission of Operation Eagle Claw is it actually had four ground force commanders or four uh, commanders instead of one, uh, you know, responsible commander. Uh, that's that's something that's going to come out of this. Yeah, and uh, why, why was that? Well, they had, uh, basically, we didn't have U.S. SOCOM, right? right? So uh, U.S. United States Special Operations Command was uh, created by Senator Goldwater and others in uh, 1987. So this is, uh, you know, the beginning of 1980, uh, we got the Army, Navy, uh, Marines, and the Air Force, and uh, we have no umbrella organization to kind of put them all under in a tidy way. And so you have uh, Colonel Beckwith has got the Army. That's the the ground force uh, contingent. You have Colonel James Kyle. He was a fixed-wing commander, the Air Force. Uh, we're we're going to eventually have Lieutenant Colonel James Seifert of the Marine Corps. Uh, they're going to have the helicopters. And then you're going to have uh, Rear Admiral Robert Kirksey, uh, the commander of the Nimitz. And really, you have these four uh, commanders, but uh, you don't have one responsible guy uh, that's going to actually be on the ground, the ground force commander, the way we do things now. And so that's really the, the first big problem. Yeah, and there wasn't um, – obviously, the services have worked together. I mean, that's, you know, the Army – the Air Force, the Navy, they're, they're all used to working together. But this was a very uh, complex, specialized operation. Yeah. Um, so there was inherent challenges with doing something, um, this precision, if you will, um, this sensitive with um, all four branches, trying to kind of uh, – there was a lot of uh, figuring things out going on here. Absolutely. So, I mean, just kind of break down the plan, all right? So, the plan, just imagine this, okay? You can look at, uh, you know, map of Iran if you want. 
Uh, but the plan was to take uh, six EC-130s. And these are, you know, 130s that can refuel. They have extra fuel pods on it. Uh, they were going to carry the raid force. This was going to be A and B squadrons and then the Rangers. And then you've got your, uh, you know, motorcycles and all your gear and all that stuff. Uh, they were going to uh, take off from <clears throat> an island off of Oman called Masara. They're going to fly 1,000 miles to uh, the rendezvous site called Desert One. So it's, uh, you know, south of, uh, the, basically the middle of Iran, south of Tehran. Near nothing. Yeah, near nothing. Uh, and it was actually a, uh, they, later on they created uh, a field landing strip. And then add eight uh, RH-53s uh, Sea Stallions. Now, earlier, uh, the rehearsals were done with uh, Air Force 53s, uh, but the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they thought they wanted to get all of uh, the services on board. Again. And so, yeah. Again, and so just... they had all of the Navy. I mean, talking hundreds of rehearsals that were done in uh, the southwest U.S. with uh, Air Force uh, 53s, and they brought the Navy in. And so these guys were playing so catch-up. Last minute. Yeah. yeah, in the 11th hour. We had eight uh, 53s. We have six 130s. And then, of course, you had, like I said, A and B squadron, the Rangers. Uh, the uh, 53s were going to take off from the Nimitz that's floating around in the Persian Gulf. Now, and, as far as complexity, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you here, but yeah. we, we had kind of done something similar to this with, with the Sante raid. Yeah. What, it, and it, with the it, same aircraft. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're talking about complexity here, um, I don't know, we're, we're, how would you think this could compare to Sante? In a lot of ways. Well, first off, you have uh, the aircraft, and I was getting to that, is the aircraft, uh, uh, the 130s were brought in so they could bring, they could not only bring in the troops, but refuel the 53s. The 53s, you know, they have a limited range. Uh, and this was also staged so they could bring them to Desert One, R the RV, refuel the 53s so they could actually travel a little bit closer to Tehran, and then they would actually cache the 53s. Uh, but, yeah, there's one big way that it's uh, uh, similar to Sante. Uh, the other thing is, uh, you know, it's a daring raid. Obviously, very complex. Uh, Sante raid, I would say, is uh, probably the best example we have for a raid that's of that complexity that's pulled off, albeit without recovering the... Uh, uh, prisoners, uh, but, you know, highly successful. I think we had one broken ankle during the whole thing. But, yeah, this plan is very complex. Uh, it, it involves moving these two moving parts. Uh, they're going to RV, uh, rendezvous at Desert One, which is in the middle of nothing. And once they get there, they're going to refuel the 53s. Uh, granted, I said they had eight. Uh, and so at this point, they needed, uh, Beckwith decided he needed six 53s to go on. Those 53s would fly onto Desert 2, which was another hideout. Uh, from there, they would cache the birds, and they would get on other uh, Trojan horse-type vehicles. Uh, moving to Tehran, a guy named uh, uh, Dick Meadows was actually a ground branch at the time. He was across the street from the embassy uh, and actually would bring them in. And from that point, the plan actually amounted to uh, a squadron with uh, silenced uh, 22s. We're going to take out the guards. They're going to maneuver in, uh, open the gate, uh, bring in the vehicles. They're going to offload the assaulters, and then they were going to just systematically clear the rest of the uh, embassy. Uh, once they had eliminated all of the, uh, the threat, uh, they were going to blast uh, the flagpoles, anything with height that they could bring in uh, the 53s. It would now be activated, pick up everybody, 
at that point, uh, this is where it gets a little more complex also, if that's not complex already. <clears throat> a uh, airfield, uh, which was southwest of uh, Tehran called uh, Manzaria, uh, that would be uh, occupied by the Rangers, uh, who would jump in out of 141s. They would airfield seize, uh, seizure that airfield, and then that would allow the uh, the birds to fly in, the 53s to fly in. They would transload everybody onto 141s and then fly off uh, to Egypt. Uh, so it was very complex. Yeah, a lot of moving parts. Uh, and prior to this, uh, to add a little bit more complexity, uh, the CIA, they go in. They go to the uh, Desert Two. Uh, they fly in on Cessnas uh, under the cover of uh, geologists, right? Um, and then they actually place uh, lights for FLS, for a field landing strip. So they've got, uh, you basically have all the moving parts you need uh, if uh, things stay the same way, if you don't have any MRF, jump in there. I mean, it's already very complex. So just before we go on any further, the big thing is we don't have, if you look at principles of war, one of them is called unity of command. And it states, for every objective, ensure unity of effort under one responsible commander. Uh, another principle of war that I think that we uh, blew here is called simplicity. So you have... Uh, we are to prepare clear, uncomplicated plans and concise orders to ensure thorough understanding. And I'm just, I would submit to you that this plan was so complex that maybe Indiana Jones and Jason Bourne could have pulled it off with uh, Chuck Norris. Maybe. But yeah, one, one of the things we, uh, you know, we're taught is the KISS principle, right? Keep it yeah. simple, stupid. Um, yeah, this thing was overly complex. Very. For, for such a um, sensitive operation, I thought it was just way overly complex. Of course, in hindsight, it's easy to say that, but I mean, when you look at some of these decisions that were made, you know, you're, right now you're kind of scratching your head going, whoa, you know, the red yeah. flags are popping. So something I didn't mention is, uh, you know, the, the CIA going into the field landing strip and in placing those lights, it was about two weeks. So we're about two weeks from the time the hostage being taken to this actually happening. In fact, a little bit more in two weeks because the embassy was stormed in November, and then this mission is going down in April. So we've had a lot of, uh, we had some time to kind of sit around. Uh, uh, now, in the middle of, in the, uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, a lot of things can happen out in the desert, okay? Uh, and so it was kind of a hard surface field landing strip at Desert One, but then, uh, you know, along comes uh, sand, blowing sand. Uh, this place is well known to have what's called uh, uh, haboobs, uh, and those are uh, just desert storms. So you've got, you know, blowing sand. This is going to cause a big problem. Okay, so uh, fast forward. Uh, they've had the units done some training in uh, Egypt and some hangars. Eventually get to uh, the island of Masira. They load up on the 130s, and then uh, they're flying in to Desert One. As they fly in, the 130s actually encounter some of this uh, uh, brownout conditions and actually go to, to altitude to kind of get out of it. Meanwhile, the 853s are on the Nimitz. They take off, uh, and then they've got you know 600 miles to go. 
uh, they don't know about this because of radio silence. And so the radio silence was something determined that was uh, you know, absolute imperative uh, to not tip off the Iranians. They also flew low level, so we're talking nap of the earth. Uh, so they encountered this brownout conditions, and uh, immediately one of them has to turn around. Uh, now, I, I think I mentioned this before, that uh, all of the rehearsals were done with uh, the Air Force 53s uh, because they wanted all the services to get on board. They brought in the Marines. Uh, no discredit to the Marine Corps, but uh, they were brought in at the last minute. Uh, and it, I think earlier I might have mistaken and said Navy, but you know these are Navy planes, 53s with the Marine Corps uh, pilots. Uh, now, so the, the, the Navy planes, though, the Navy 53 is not outfitted the same way as the Air Force ones. So they don't have, uh, you know, some of the, the vents are not, don't have the, the grills are going to keep some of this uh, foreign object debris, the FOD, away from it. Anyway, uh, as one takes off, it immediately has problems. It turns back to the Nimitz. Another one encounters the brownout. Uh, it lands, and another one, uh, another uh, blue beard picks them up, and then goes on uh, to Desert One. So at this point, you have six 53s that actually make it to Desert One. So there's a lot of drama going on with that. Okay, meanwhile, uh, the 130s land at uh, Desert One, and uh, immediately, you know, you've got this picture of the Rangers. The ramp comes down. You've got these Rangers on these uh, motorcycles, you know, flying out of the back of the 130. Uh, they go off to their blocking positions. Uh, along comes a fuel truck. Uh, this is the, uh, the fuel, the famous fuel truck incident. Uh, and so the idea is there's a fuel truck. It's making its way through the desert at night for whatever reason. It, it blows past uh, where it's supposed to stop. Uh, it's supposed to stop. It doesn't. And it gets lit up by the rangers who fire off a law. So just imagine that. you got the night sky lit up as a ranger is firing a law at a fuel truck. Uh, also, there's a, uh, uh, there's a tourist bus or just a bus that's making its way to the desert. Uh, perhaps a bus you know, carrying you know, civilians on their way to the city. They get pulled over. So this uh, place out in the middle of nothing suddenly becomes you know, full of people. So the busload of people are offloaded. They're uh, surged. And now they have uh, a front row seat of what's going to happen. Uh, so meanwhile... Uh, the aircraft are there. They discovered there's about a foot of drifting sand where there used to be a hard-packed surface or at least a hard desert surface. And uh, so this is going to cause a lot of issues. As helicopters land, uh, the next problem, the next snag in the mission happens, and that is uh, the aircraft that is flown by Colonel Seifert, uh, he informs uh, Beckwith that the, the Landing gear, the nose wheel is actually you know not operable, not operating at a optimum level, and he decides that he doesn't want to go forward in that helicopter. So now this leaves Beck with with five helicopters, and so before this mission even got off the ground, we needed six fifty threes, right? Uh, and so the idea behind it is these fifty threes, you know, were. Uh, they were going to need to load uh, hostages, assaulters, and any other strap hangers that they're going to encounter on the objective. So uh, six was going to be minimal to kind of fit all the packs on it. So now with five, we've got a situation. Uh, 
uh, we've kind of reached a. Uh, there, reading Beckwith's book, uh, Delta Force, he's actually arguing with Seifert about, hey, this this bird's going to go. You know, you know, and you have, uh, you know, a situation where an army commander is arguing with a pilot, you know, as a commander of these uh, uh, these six helicopters. This thing's not deadline. It's not, you know, we're going to circle X this. This is going to get off the ground. This is going to go. And, uh, but to no avail. So Cypher is like, this is not happening. Uh, he actually goes off and describes, hey, I flew through this brownout. He describes flying through it uh, like uh, uh, something like flying through a bowl of cereal. Okay, so not being able to, I'm not really sure what that means, but. Well, you can't see. Uh, yeah, you're not seeing anything. You're not seeing anything. You're on a complete instrument. Yeah. Period. You might as well not even have a windshield. Right. So at this point, we have a decision to make. So um, so now you've just, just remind you of this. You've got these four uh, you know, commanders. You've got Beckwith, who's with the Army. Kyle uh, is the colonel, Air Force Wing. You know, he's got the six 130s. And then you got Cypher, he's got the six 53s on the ground. He's deciding, hey, this one bird's not going to go. And then, uh, you know, Admiral Kirksey on the Nimitz. Now, something that uh, I want to bring up here is uh, Kirksey uh, only allowed eight of the 53s to be brought on the aircraft carrier. And the original plan called for 10 53s. And so I, th- I think it's important to note at this point that uh, had they had those two extra, this mission probably would have gone, uh, numerically speaking. Uh, but, you know, b- being that as it may, um, you know, he already made that decision. So so here's the situation. You know, Beckwith, he's got a brand-new unit. You know, this is the premier counterterrorist unit for the United States military, Delta Force. You know, they've been, you know, uh, in existence for two and a half years, and this is it. You've got all these experiences from Vietnam. You've... You've commanded guys in the field, and now you've got 53 hostages. You've got American lives on the line. You've got uh, all these four commanders. Just imagine this huddle of these, you know, at least three commanders on the ground, and they're deciding, you know, how to plot a way forward. And you just got to think, um, man, I really don't want to be Charlie Beckwith at this point. <laughs> Uh, not a not an easy time to make a you know it's not a really you know fun time to be a commander. Um, before I go on, I just want to note that uh, uh, he kind of had a, a shouting match, if you will, with uh, the, the pilots, and uh, you know he goes on in his book saying, "Hey, I was pretty much thinking I was just going to pull out my my sidearm and say." This thing's getting off the ground, something like that. So it was, this was a heated exchange, um, and you know, for those of us who have seen the twenty-four hour ladder that's come out, a uh, plane side, and you want to do X, Y, Z, and you say, "Well, you know, this is not my bird." You know, uh, at times they would say, "Your bird, Army." They used to say that, except when you're going to be a jump master. But now, <clears throat> this is not their bird, and so he's forced to acquiesce. Uh, and he has to make this decision. So now you got this long uh, chain of phone calls. So you get uh, President Jimmy Carter. He's notified. Hey, uh, you know, the aircraft that's needed to go on is not available. And so now we're at a decision point. Um, and and uh, what's awesome about Jimmy Carter is I think there's a few things that are good about him. But at this point, he says, let's go with what the ground force commander said. 
instead of saying, hey, this is going to go. You know, all, you know, I don't want to hear any excuses. You're going to go for broke. And, and that could have happened. Um, you know, I could, I could think of some other people that were been in the Oval Office that might have said that. I can imagine uh, Johnson saying that. I can imagine Nixon saying, no, you're going. I can kind of see that. I don't know what, what your thoughts here. I've been talking a lot. I just want to bring you in. This is like a monologue here. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, I I'm just listening to you and and I'm just I'm just thinking back because I was I was 13 years old. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I wasn't. And, uh, uh, I wasn't on the ground for this either. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's now I've I've obviously um, had the privilege of working um, with some folks that were were on that operation, mm. and it's interesting listening to um, their stories. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was 13 years old. My, uh, my parent worked for, uh, electronic data systems, EDS. For those of you that might, uh, remember, uh, that was Ross Perot's company and, uh, EDS electronic data systems, um, handled the finances for the Shah of Iran. So I remember, um, as a young man, um, being, you know, our, our, my mom specifically, uh, she was offered uh, a job in uh, in Tehran, Iran, uh, to work over there, and we came very close to uh, wow. accepting that position. Wow! Uh, so, even though it was a complicated um, operation, uh, a lot of people don't realize that going on almost simultaneously <laughs> with this. Uh, was Ross Pro getting uh, his employees out of Tehran, and he did that using uh, Arthur uh, Bull Simmons, and uh, Ross Pro was su- successful at uh, freeing uh, a couple of the EDS employees that had also been in prison and what have you. But um, he had a lot of EDS employees over there. He was able to uh, uh, through uh, Arthur Bull Simmons um, get all his folks out. Uh, successfully uh, from Tehran. So there was a lot of, uh, for me, there's a lot of memories for this whole thing. And obviously the failed uh, raid was uh, probably the final blow to Jimmy Carter's presidency. I mean, I, that mm-hmm. was, I, I remember that was, uh, you know, quite a uh, shock. Uh, it was quite a letdown. And you, you talk about him being able to make that decision uh, to go with the ground force commander. And I think that says a lot about Jimmy Carter. I mean, I, I know he got picked on a lot, but of course uh, we've seen worse since, haven't we? Um, you know, Jimmy Carter was, I think most people will say, was a good man at the wrong time, um, mm. if, if you want to characterize him. But uh, this decision, I think, also proves that that, uh, that characterization that he was a good man. He knew to go with the ground yeah. force commander yeah, instead, of his, instead of his own political ambition. Exactly. So that's that's one good thing about this is, uh, you know, you know uh, as they say, war is an extension of politics. You know, there's an interaction between war and politics. And uh, so often you have things on the ground happening for just, you know, score political points for elections going on, this, that, and the other. But you don't really have that. You just have Americans saying, hey, look, we got Americans. We want to get them out. And how do we do that? So I just, I just often think about this, you know, these three guys plain side, you know, it's, it's dark. You know, it's about two in the morning. You know, it's cold. 
you got guys wearing Earth, Wind, and Fire goggles, right? Those giant freaking goggles, right? You got blowing sand, right? Uh, and then you've got uh, <clears throat> this gnawing um, desire to make this happen. You know, the whole world's watching. You know, you're, you've you've invaded Iran, okay? <laughs> you're you're in their sovereign territory, and you have all of these uh, all this uh, equipment. You got all these aircraft. Yeah, everything's been put in place. Yeah. All the personnel have been put in place. All of the plans. I mean, <clears throat> everyone else has been doing their part in this thing. Yeah. And your piece is falling apart. Yeah, and I've been on missions like this. Uh, I've had on a couple of abort aborted missions where you're like, you want you could you wanted this mission so bad you could taste it. Yeah. And you, you wanted it to happen. And I've uh, I've been on a couple where I've seen those in charge making it happen yeah. and they would just they would compromise things so you're like whoa that that was not a good compromise you just you know whatever it was yeah. s- security uh you know if you need, yeah if you've been in the military been. any amount of time um you've you've experienced this letdown yeah and it's that's really what it is it's uh you know you've geared up for the big game your whole life and it's right there you know, it's yeah. right there. You've been rehearsing over and over again. You've got this thing. You've got confidence. You know you can do it. You know, it's time to play ball. And for whatever reason, you know, someone pulls the plug. Um, but generally, Paul, I mean, am I right? I mean, generally in hindsight, you go, even though you're depressed as hell and pissed yeah. off, in hindsight, you go, you know, that was the right decision. Yeah, and that's exactly. When, when you finally uh, get the facts. That's what we when when all the dust settled from yeah. this, uh, you know, Beckwith is exonerated. Right. I mean, this was a hard call for him to make, and of course, we all wanted him to go. You know, make a you know uh, a play and hit the uh, end zone and, and get a touchdown and get everybody out. Uh, but you know, he made the hard call. It's a hard call, and this uh, for those of and I've never been a commander, but I have to. I've had to make some hard calls, and and that was one of those. And I think that's a testament to his character too. I highlight in the in the book tactical leadership, and that is uh, his judgment. You know, judgment is uh, you know you, you're making the hard the hard decision, uh, and it's not based off of uh, ego. Now, because you know if there was ego involved, there there was there's always a little bit of ego here, right? And you've got uh, the you had to think, hey, this is the whole you know this could shut down the unit. In fact, this almost put the, the unit out of business. It was close. I mean, I wasn't in those rooms when they were talking about this, but you know somebody had to been thinking about it. No, because about you it. always have the naysayers, even um, even creating Delta in the first place, um, you knew you had obstacles. I mean, there's lots of people in the military that do not like special operations. Yeah. Um, and so you knew already just creating the unit was difficult. Yeah. And now you have all those detractors, you know, they're just, they're just saying, see, I told you so, yeah. you know, and that's what you get. So, yeah, this was, uh, there's so many things that could be said, but this is really his defining moment in his leadership. Yeah. And, uh, but he had to make the hard call. He looked at it and he said, okay, I only have five aircraft. And he said, well, now he had to order the abort. Right. So that was a hard call. And for uh, his part, uh, as we said, uh, President Carter said, um, let's go with what the guys on the ground said and uh, to his credibility. And so they did. So he scrubbed the mission. The word got out. You can imagine people being disappointed about that. Uh, 
but the the next uh, decision was we need to go ahead and refuel those 53s. They flew 600 miles from the Nimitz. They're going to get refueled to fly back to the Nimitz. Uh, and so they uh, they set up stage to do that. So I've got a little bit of diagram uh, in in my book. Basically, just imagine your mind's eye. You have uh, you know six 130s, Republic one through six, and then you have uh, Bluebeard one through eight. And so they're kind of stacked behind each other. Uh, and so the original plan uh, called for uh, 50-foot hoses uh, to be laid out. <clears throat> and so, you know, you got, uh, you know, ample room, but then you also have this issue of, uh, it's night and it's blowing sand. And now you got a foot of depth of sand. And so now you can't just ground taxi, right? For those of you who have been on a helicopter, you've seen that all of us get out of these aircraft now when they're uh, engine running on loading. But back then they would actually have everybody stay in them. And that, for reasons why we'll, we'll discover, we don't do that. But uh, so you had Bluebird 3 uh, is coming up to get uh, refueled by Republic 4. So Republic 4 is a 130. Bluebird, uh, excuse me, Bluebeard 3 is a 53. Uh, the 50-foot fuel hoses have been taken out to make more room. And in place of it, we have a 20-foot hose. So now we've got 30 feet less uh, distance. So now just imagine you've got the Air Force Lodi. Uh, he's, uh, you know, bringing in this uh, 53, which the helicopter is giant, right? Uh, they call some of the, I think the Navy ones, uh, uh, or maybe I've got it wrong, but Jolly Green Giant. Anyway, this is this thing is ginormous, right? And now it's it's uh, it's hovering, and now you've got blowing sand, and this guy is, is fighting to stay in a stationary position. Uh, from what I've read... Uh, the Lodi is standing in the back of the 130 that's kind of bringing in the 53. Uh, the, uh, the rotor wash kind of blows him back, and the pilot of the 53 overcorrects, and when he does, he plows into the back of the, of the uh, 130. And, uh, you know, on board of the 130 that's being re- doing the refueling are unit guys, and uh, so you have. Uh, I've talked to. I talked to one guy who was on that bird, and you know the whole thing's on fire, uh, and they're diving out of every orifice on that plane. You know the side doors. You know, thank God we're open. They're diving out of it, um, and because the the whole fuselage is just going up in flames. One of the guys uh, dives out uh, like a a free fall position, and he lands belly first. And uh, I just got to tell you this little story, but they asked him, hey, what were you doing? And, you know, later on, he said, well, I thought we were in the air. I was just going to free fall out. They said, well, you didn't have a shoot on. He said, I was just taking it one step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, you know, this place yeah. sucks and let's go for the next place. It might be a little better. Yeah. yeah. So you just got to imagine that guy was just racking out, like, hey, this mission scrubbed, yeah. you know. Uh, now, sadly... Uh, we lose eight Americans when that thing goes up. Uh, so we had Marines, Air Force, pilots, uh, and it goes up. Uh, we lose the 130, we lose the 53, uh, and then others were injured on that. Uh, so now this is adding insult to injury. Uh, at that point, uh, Beckwith orders all the 53s just to be inc- uh, incinerated 
Okay, throw some incendiary grenades on it. Uh, get all the OPSEC stuff out of it. Scrub it all. And we're gone. Yeah, yeah we're gone. Um, now, unfortunately, not out, that didn't happen. And there was uh, a few, I think two 53s were left. Uh, and some of them had uh, some OPSEC stuff, which had some incriminating data that would have uh, maybe nabbed Dick Meadows had he not been flying out Argo style on yep. that morning, just barely getting out of the airport. But uh, so now you have uh, eventually they got everybody on the 130s and they fly out of there. Um, so at this point, I want to look at what was called the Holloway Report. Uh, Admiral Holloway was uh, the chief of naval operations, uh, and they, they decided to, to figure out, hey, what just happened? And so he came out with the Holloway Report, uh, and he, he looked at 21 various issues that uh, made this mission fail. And I just want to mention the top eight because we kind of hit them already. Uh, I want to look at the top eight and then maybe just kind of wrap things up on uh, what this means for leadership. So here's number eight. Uh, we mentioned uh, the Sante Raid. Well, this bears a lot of relevance. The C-130s. Right, they they were used uh, along with the fifty three counterparts in the Sante raid, same aircraft, uh, and but what we didn't have is those fifty uh, threes could have uh, gone up to altitude, avoided the brownout conditions, and then we might not have lo uh, lost at least one of the aircraft. Uh, that was number eight. Number seven is the the CIA. Uh, nobody bothered to mention, so the left, left hand not talking to the right, uh, they didn't bother to mention the, uh, uh, the dust clouds uh, that were common in Iran. And so after they had the field landing strip set up, lo and behold, you know, the situation is not going to remain the same. And so this is where weather comes in. You know, weather changes. Uh, the, the conditions caused, uh, the, really led to the catastrophe. Uh, this is why we also have weather teams attached uh, to SF teams and stuff like that. Uh, number six, uh, the radio silence. As I, I alluded to earlier, uh, they could have uh, could have broke radio silence for that, and that would have prevented at least one of the helicopters from being lost. Number five was uh, the foot of drifting sand that covered the field landing strip. Uh, that uh, no doubt led to the catastrophe. And then number four, uh, the loadmasters removing the 50-foot refueling hoses uh, and having 20-footers in place in, in place of that. Uh, that was also uh, unbeknownst to the pilots. And so that was a uh, pretty bad call. The idea was to make room for the kit. But, uh, you, know, you know, the uh, uh, principal purpose, you know, is being refueled. That would have taken precedence over that. Uh, and that stuff, anyway, so it just reminds us not to kind of do things without checking you know, of the bigger, yeah. you know, picture. And then uh, number three is uh, Seifert, Colonel Seifert's uh, uh, 53 was damaged and it required. Uh, the other thing is this, uh, instead of air taxiing, uh, they had to uh, hover. I'm sorry, excuse, excuse, me, excuse me. Instead of just being on the ground and kind of maneuver the helicopters around, you know, we have to have these birds that not really defy gravity anyway, flying around and blowing Sand and, uh, everywhere. Making the situation worse. Yeah. Uh, so you have brownout conditions. And then number uh, two. Number two. Here's a big one, right? So guys, uh, NCOs, non-coms, we know that uh, rehearsal 
is a big part of everything we do. You know, rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. A uh, little bit of a side, uh, you know, the Titanic, uh, uh, or excuse me, Lusitania had uh, lifeboats, but they didn't go to rehearsal on how to get them down. And so uh, that thing went down, and nobody was in the lifeboats because nobody ever rehearsed getting them down and using them. Uh, fortunately for the people on the Titanic, they did, but they had other problems. But the, the whole problem with the rehearsal is not everybody was involved. And so at the last hour, you're bringing the Marines, no discredit to them, but 11th hour, they're being thrown in there without uh, the luxury of having the rehearsals and just having to play catch-up. Yeah, so uh, as a result, um, we talked about the good things that came out of this. And as a result, of course, uh, number one and number two uh, were absolutely corrected, okay? Uh, the creation of uh, Joint Special Operations Command. Yeah. Um, we also had uh, Joint Medical Augmentation Unit. It was another thing that... Uh, Got out in there, which we had our you know thoracic surgeons and what have you all available. So uh, these warriors had uh, top notch medical care. I mean, within minutes. Um, rehearsals. I'm telling yeah. you right now, uh, having been a part of JSOC and you as well, uh, the rehearsals are brutal. Yeah. But if you know you are not doing anything without rehearsing, 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 yeah. and that's with everything that's going. It, nothing comes in later. If it wasn't on rehearsal, it doesn't go. Yeah, and uh, and and that's why these that's why these missions really are so precision. That's why everything is down to the the second because it's just quite honestly, it's just a lot of hard work, yeah. you know. And yeah. uh, that's really what, in my opinion, what makes the difference between uh, exceptional units and just your regular ordinary uh, military units. And that Absolutely. is the level of effort that you put into those rehearsals. Absolutely. So uh, the first, the number one reason for the failure of Desert One, as given by the Holloway Report, was there there were in effect four mission commanders. Yeah, and I think we mentioned that earlier. It's uh, it's so important. There's unity of command, uh, and so you had uh, you know too many chefs spoil the soup, uh, spoil the broth, uh, and so you just got to have one guy, yeah. and that's just how it is. And uh, it, but uh, planning. Before I talk about leadership as a final uh, uh, takeaway, as far as planning goes, uh, the FM5 talks about uh, you know planning and orders production, and it talks about uh, really um, pitfalls. So some of the pitfalls we saw with that is uh, people thinking that uh, the situation on the ground is just going to continue on. It's like, hey, the condition right now on the ground with the enemy disposition and the weather, it's just going to be the same in two weeks you're going to fall into a planning pitfall. You know, yeah. we're, we're uh, you don't want to do that. You want to look at also this, the plan was too rigid. So it had too many uh, things that could go wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was so many things that could happen. If this one thing happens, then everything is, you know, that one bolt's going to fall out. Then the whole, you know, show is lost. And so, so, we, so and we talk about that because every time you, too many, you know, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah, as soon know? as you put something in there that can go wrong, okay, as soon as you complicate your plan, now you have to come up with all the contingencies. Yeah, you so have if a you, single point failure. Yeah, so if you start getting too many of these uh, points of yeah. failure, uh, it just really um, just grows as far as how complicated it gets. Exactly. So the, the idea is this. Uh, the plans that are too rigid, that are too rigid, they run the risk of being destroyed by chance events. So just think, an operation like this would be, you know, uh, Market Garden. 
Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's just it's a bridge too far. There's just too many things, too many moving parts. Uh, and so we, we said this earlier that Desert One was perhaps one of the more difficult operations of its size ever undertaken. And it was just, there was simply no room for error. If yeah. one little thing happens, just, you know, the whole thing is just going to come apart at the seams. And that's unfortunately what you saw. But uh, the hostages eventually did get released, okay, but not in the way that we had intended. Uh, Carter was defeated by uh, Ronald Reagan in that election. And then what followed was called the Algiers Accords in 1980. And uh, one of the stipulations of uh, that, those accords were we were going to keep our fingers out of uh, the Iranian pie and just kind of leave them alone. And uh, we promised that. And I think uh, well, for we, the most part we, we have. Did, we, yeah, we did uh, help um, overthrow a duly elected yeah. government. So yeah, that was probably a good move. Uh, also, we you know we mentioned the creation of uh, United States Special Operations Command. Yep. Uh, headquartered out of uh, Tampa. And this is an umbrella organization. We have all the special ops from all the branches brought together. Yeah. Uh, but uh, really, I, I mentioned leadership too. Uh, and just, I wanted to finish on that. And then, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure you want to come back here too, Mike, is just with uh, Beckwith's leadership. And I think it would be, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about that. Uh, you know, it was, it was, as complicated as this mission was, and as much as, you know, I know Beckwith and we all wanted them to get a win, uh, it just couldn't happen. And uh, so this, um, this is really a testament to, you know, being a mission commander and wanting that to happen and, and, uh, but knowing, Hey, if I do it, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have a risk the force that's going to be uh, unpardonable. And so you have this uh, idea that uh, you take a prudent risk, uh, and so you have like a, a tethered audacity, if you will. And this was just too much. Uh, it would be too audacious for him to just keep going. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you look back on uh, Colonel Beckwith. I mean, uh, you know, man's man, the guy, the guy set up the unit. Uh, but the big thing is, would that mission, could that mission actually, could it have been have you know, been pulled off. I don't know. You know, what would that look like if, if we you talk about how he made a different decision? No, no. If, if they, if let's or say if that it, uh, none, none of the issues would have taken place. Yeah, let's say we had those uh, that sixth uh, fifty three oh. would have been broke. I don't think he would have had any problem at all. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that something else wouldn't have wouldn't have came up. Um, yeah. and it could have been something worse. Yeah, but generally speaking, um, I. You know the people involved in this in this mission uh, in this operation, uh, exceptional individuals, exceptionally trained, um, and I think they would have been successful. I mean, uh, Iran was in certainly in a state of flux; it wasn't very organized. Um, uh, a lot of chaos. So, you know, the, the environment was, uh, even though very chaotic and very dangerous, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't very organized, which means the Iranians themselves would have probably had some difficulty reacting um, to, a, to a, uh, a unit that uh, had a very well uh, rehearsed and planned operation. Yeah. Now, I, I don't want to leave this also. I mentioned the Holloway Report, but it actually did exonerate him. I just want to read this uh, uh, snippet. Uh, in their concluding remarks, the uh, commission stated the dynamics 
inherent in a recovery of that type uh, would have produced a level of complexity that makes the study of probabilities essentially a matter of conjecture. you got to unravel that one there. But under those conditions, it said, the decision to execute uh, the way he did was justified. Uh, and so they, they exonerated Beckwith. Uh, the unit remained the unit, which is good. Uh, the unit actually went on uh, after that to execute uh, 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 what was grenade? I forgot what the operation. Uh, Urgent Fury. Urgent Fury. Okay, so they're at Richmond Heights. You know, they. Uh, I got a, a bunch of buddies in that also, but uh, they were exonerated. So the unit was actually shown to be, you know, tip of the spear, and uh, the time invested into creating that and training those men for that was not wasted. No, and I think uh, I think the uh, Holloway's report was was heated. You know, a lot of times you yeah. have these reports, and it's just like they kind of just like, okay, we knock this one out, just kind of stick it on the shelf, don't worry about it. But uh, the nice thing about this report was that it actually um, had some corrective action. Yeah, you know, they they did some things, they did some structural things to fix this to make sure this didn't happen again. Yeah, just I mean, just I probably already said this, but uh, you know, judgment. It doesn't always make us popular. I mean, you know that that decision he made was not popular with his men. Everybody wanted to go. Uh, and it wasn't popular at the time, but it was the correct decision, and he knew it was. And so, um, you know, it all happened the way it did. Sometimes uh, it just reminds us of the stoic uh, uh, axiom that uh, you focus on what you can control. And these events were, as beyond, were beyond his control, and so he made the best decision he could with what he had. Well, anyway, I see uh, charging Charlie Beckwith. Um, I was just looking at his, his uh, credentials and bio here. Um, member of the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, uh, Special Forces Detachment B-52, right? Uh, uh, 2nd Battalion, 327th Airborne Infantry Regiment, Delta Force, SAS, Fought in Korea War, Laotian Civil War, uh, Malawian, uh, Malayan Emergency, Vietnam War, obviously, and of course Operation Eagle Claw. But uh, Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, the Oak Leaf Cluster, uh, Legion of Merit, Bronze Star, Purple Heart. Definitely a warrior's warrior. It's a, and a uh, guy uh, passed away Austin, Texas in 1994. <clears throat> yeah, but you, when you look at the leadership of it, uh, definitely uh, it just highlights that uh, you know, somebody to emulate and that you're going to be tasked with making hard decisions. They're not going to be popular, but you're going to have to make them when it's the right decision. And it would be a decision uh, based on uh, being tethered uh, with uh, reality. You know, I know you're going to want to make it happen, but uh, you know, look at the big picture and then uh, weigh risk to mission, risk to force. All right. Well, anyway, I hope you uh, enjoyed uh, today's episode of the Pine Lander and uh, talking about uh, Operation Eagle Claw. Uh, if you enjoyed the content, hope uh, you'll enjoy out, uh, check out the sponsors, Blacksmith Publishing. I've uh, been serving the warrior class since 2013. Uh, go to blacksmithpublishing.com. Uh, go to the bookstore, check it out. Uh, lots of good stuff there at the website. Uh, if you're looking for some cool uh, Pinelander apparel, uh, go over to the head over to the general store at pinelander1776.com. Got a great selection of... Uh, various different apparel, sweaters, and stickers, and what have you. And uh, thank you for the support of the American Agogi Project, where we're building tomorrow's warriors today. And until our next meeting, remember, keep your head on a swivel, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. God bless Pineland. Land.